you have your Bibles, you'd open up to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to continue in our series through the letter to the Philippians, a series we titled Citizen. Our text this morning comes from chapter 3, verse 17 through 4, verse 1. And really, this text should be read as kind of part two of a larger theme that began in verse 12, where I preached last week. And basically, in calling the Philippians to a genuine and growing faith, Paul is warning the Philippians about two dangers found in running that road toward maturity. If maturity means, most simply, a deeper relationship with God, then essentially Paul is warning about two ways people tend to avoid or ruin relationship with God, even if they identify as Christians. I find it interesting in the book of Ecclesiastes, there is a similar warning about life that when you first read it sounds strange. Solomon says this in Ecclesiastes 7, in my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who dies in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, And do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. So be neither overly righteous or overly wicked. Not too good or not too evil, not too wise and not too foolish. Sounds kind of strange. But in our relationship with God, I think we tend towards similar kinds of ditches, if you will. Either one that's rigid or one that's more liberal. What do I mean by that? Well, some avoid relationship with God by being overly religious. And some avoid relationship with God by being overly irreligious. Some avoid relationship with God through self-righteousness. Others, through self-indulgence. Basically, some avoid relationship with God, their need for God, by being really good. And others, by being really bad. One makes gods out of creation to worship and find salvation in. And the other makes a god of themselves. Now, the legalist, which is the self-righteous, they wrongly believe that their work matters too much. On the other side, those tend toward license or liberality believe that their work doesn't matter enough. The legalist makes grace much more expensive than Jesus' blood. And they encourage others to do more. And don't worry so much about what you believe. This mentality creates, I think what's best described as kind of pretentious Christians who elevate being spiritual over being humble. The liberal makes grace cheaper than the death of Jesus. And they encourage others to just believe more and do little to nothing. And this creates what can only be described as authentic Christians who elevate being real over actually being holy. Two ditches, two tendencies, if you will, both led by so-called Christian personalities, even preachers. 
But both these paths actually lead away from the truth. They lead away from heaven. They lead away from relationship with God. They pretend in their own ways to walk a certain kind of Christianity that really isn't Christianity at all. Because they both reject the cross. One rejects its sufficiency, and the other rejects its necessity. So, beginning in verse 12, Paul has already addressed one side of this group. He addressed the self-righteous, those he called the circumcision dogs. These are the ones infiltrating the Philippian church. But having walked that path of religious legalism for most of his life, Paul's really aware of the dangers. But now he's going to turn in our text away from the legalists to talk to what we might describe as the liberal or the self-indulgent one in the church. So you take a look at Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 17, and we'll see how this all makes sense. Paul writes, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, Stand firm, thus in the Lord, my beloved. So let's begin by talking about this. I don't know if you're a parent. At some point, you will likely teach your child how to drive. It is a frightening endeavor. I've done it twice now, survived both, and they're okay drivers. What I've learned, though, is that there's something you would think that goes without saying when someone is learning to drive, and that is that you need to learn to keep your eyes on the road. But I've learned that you actually have to speak those words. You actually have to teach that to these new drivers, probably because due to the number of distractions that uh, are filling the world and filling our cars while we drive, New drivers can mistakenly believe that the safest way to stay on the road is try to avoid every hazard that they see. And what happens is they kind of adopt what I've described as a reactive vigilance. That they're so focused on avoiding one thing, one bad thing, one ditch, one hazard, that they overcorrect and they end up hitting another one that they didn't see. Okay, And so... This is kind of what Paul is talking about. And in the Christian life, we're like a pendulum, right? We're like, oh, that's bad. Oh, that's just as bad. And so he's now swinging back the other way because he's teaching us, look, in this case, we can't just spend our lives avoiding bad examples. So the first thing he does here as he's beginning to unpack the other side, if you will, he says, we can't just avoid bad examples. We can't just focus on not making mistakes. We actually have to keep our eyes on those who walk faithfully. 
and follow really good examples. Now, throughout his letters, Paul does this. He calls different churches in different places to imitate me or follow my example. And it can feel like Paul is putting himself on a pedestal, like, you know, I've got my Christianity all figured out. Follow me and you'll be just fine. But he calls them brothers. And he does that by putting himself in the same place, in the same playing field, if you will, that they are in. Early in the letter, we must not forget that the first person Paul pointed to was Christ. He pointed it to his example, his, his humility as the place to start. And as you read in his other's letters, he often says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. It follows that an example that we may or may not follow is only going to be as good as the example they themselves are following. And so we should always wonder who they're following. The writer of Hebrews tells us something important. He says in chapter 13, verse 7, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, <clears throat> among those who speak the word, I think we are naturally most attracted to those who speak it really well. And what I mean, I'll call it those models of fruitfulness, those who appear to achieve and enjoy all kinds of success, those are the models like, man, I want to follow that person. I'm going to listen to that guy. They seem to have it together. And there aren't necessarily anything inherently wrong with that, but I think instead of just being compelled to follow models of fruitfulness, we should intentionally seek out models of faithfulness. There can be a difference. A model of faithfulness are not just those who enjoy success or comfort, but those who actually rejoice and endure despite hardship and failure. Those are the examples worthy of following. I mean, consider Paul's example. Consider the outcome of Paul's life. Unlike the other teachers that he is often speaking about, he's in prison. He's suffered quite a bit. Consider the outcome of Jesus' life, who lived perfectly, sinlessly, and yet was killed by those he came to save. And so as we evaluate even the outcome of someone's life, we must be careful to evaluate it from the perspective of heaven and not from the perspective of the world. But Paul does say we need examples to follow. And he says more than that. He says we actually need real, genuine fleshly, tangible, I-can-touch-and-feel examples. He doesn't just say, hey, Philippians, follow me. He actually says, keep your eyes on the example you have in us. Well, why us? Well, us can only be those people that the Philippians actually know, that they're familiar with. Like who? Well, Paul, certainly. But Silas was there when they planted the church. They definitely know Timothy, and they know one of their own, Epaphroditus. Now, Paul's life for us today is an example, but I would argue it's not necessarily the best example for us to imitate. What do I mean by that? Well, true imitation requires intimacy. Discipleship can't happen from a distance. 
You cannot be pastored by a podcast. You can't be discipled by a dead theologian. I believe the imitation of faith that Paul speaks about best happens in the context of this, of a local church where we actually know each other, real people with real life and real success and real failure and real hardship. The church, not primarily the pastor, everyday, normal, average Christians, not a class, not a program, are responsible to example one another, if that can be used as a verb. Younger men learning from older men. Younger women learning from older women. Brothers and sisters sharing stories. Stories of failure, stories of joy, stories of parenting, stories of marriage, stories of life. Speaking truth to one another and maturing as they do. I would suggests that there are abounding number of examples in our church of men and women whose faith is worthy of imitation. Much more powerful than any podcast or any author. Real people with real stories. And like Paul, they're not worthy because they're perfect. But precisely because they're not. The idea of this kind of culture is captured well in a book called The Vine and Trellis, which I've referenced before. And this is the kind of thing that, that I'm talking about. So I want you to imagine for a second that you're the pastor. Probably not that hard, right? Imagine you're the pastor and someone comes up to you and says this, and I've gotten this question many times. Hey, I've been here a long time. I'd really like to to contribute in some way. I like to get connected in some way. It just feels like I don't, I don't know what to do. I'm not really on the inner circle that they think exists, right? This inner circle. I still haven't figured out where it's at, but it's there somewhere. And, and so I never am asked to do anything. I just want to get engaged and involved in ministry. What can I do? So the question is, what would you say? You're the pastor. What's your natural inclination? Is it to go like, well, there's an event coming up. There's a program that's about to start. Well, I know there's a job. We need someone on Rody's crew. Um, wait, there's a ministry I know that they probably could be passionate about, be a part of. That's kind of how we view discipleship. When instead, a better response, but a more frightening one, might be something like this hey, that's awesome. What a great desire. See that guy sitting over there in that chair by himself? Yeah, that's Tina's husband. He's on the fringe of things here. I'm not even sure he's actually a Christian. How about I introduce you to him and you arrange to have a coffee with him once a week and you read the Bible together and share life? Hey, what? What about the Bible study? Imitation, following examples and setting examples. Maturity requires imitation, and imitation requires intimacy. And dare I say, older men and older women, intimacy requires invitation. Paul says we need examples, we need to follow them. 
And why would he say that? Well, here's why. It's what he says next. There's a lot of bad examples out there. There's a lot of so-called Christian bad examples out there. There are many, he says. You look at verse 18. He says, for many of whom I have often told you. So the word for, right? Just say, follow my example. Follow the example you have us. Walk like we do for. There's a lot of other walkers out there. For many of whom I have often told you now, tell you even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame and the mindset on earthly things. So he's already addressed the legalistic Christians that are in the church, and now he talks about other Christians that are in the big C church, even if they're not in Philippi. And he's talked with the Philippians about them before. Exactly who these people are is unclear, but it's not the legalists he's been talking about. I would argue it's the self-indulgence. And speaking about them brings Paul to tears. Like, why are you so emotional, Paul? Are you just getting old? What is it? Why are you crying about this? couple reasons, maybe. One could be he just loves the church. He loves the Philippian church. He loves the local church. And he hates to see anything plaguing the church that is taking them away from an affection and a love for Christ. I think another, maybe even more likely, is that he is thinking about and referring to people he knows who have walked away from the faith. Perhaps you know people like that once faithful, once walking as friends of the cross, now walking as enemies of the cross. He had a friend, his name was Demas. Paul refers to him twice in the Bible, if you read the New Testament. At the end of Colossians, he refers to him. He's with Paul. He says, ah, Demas sends you greetings along with Luke, the beloved. Oh, great. And in the last letter Paul ever writes, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says this, Demas in love with this present world, has deserted me. That would bring someone to tears. I know brothers and sisters in Christ who I partnered in gospel work with who no longer love Jesus or know Jesus, even if they still consider themselves Christian. Paul's encouragement to imitate his walk and the walk of others is because there are many, maybe even a majority, who walk as enemies of the cross. And walk implies like behavior, actually living in some way, perhaps in contrast to how the Bible says or how Jesus says we ought live. These aren't false teachers as much as they're false converts. And they have influence in the church still. Today, we see these people. There's a growing movement in the Christian church. Those who were once in the church seem to be leaving the church. They, they call themselves the deconverted. And the reasons for their apostasy, and that's what it is, are not surprising because they're not new. And all of their objections have answers. Just this week, there was an article in the Gospel Coalition website, Elisa Childers, she observed this, that the power and influence behind these deconversions, 
It's not the actual arguments that they're making. It's the personalities behind the arguments. These personalities are not more convincing in what they say than the pillars of faith that have come before them. But it seems like they're more influential, largely because they're more accessible. In the culture we live in, Man, we can download content like no one's business all the time, everywhere. Childers wrote this, Our cultural moment is a cauldron of information and celebrity worship in which the cult of personality can ferment and grow. And with every hit of the like button, the personalities we subscribe to have become our authorities for truth. This is the danger that Paul is referring to even back in the Philippian church. It's been around for a long time. These personalities are charismatic and they speak with such authority because honestly they speak so frequently. We live in an era where the examples that are put out for us to follow, the loudest examples are podcast prophets and YouTube theologians. And Honestly, these virtual examples have begun to carry more influence than the real ones right in front of us. They are, I believe, irreligious apostles of unbelief who, like Paul's former friend, are in love with the world more than they're truly in love with God or His Word. And more than that, Paul says, they glory in their shame. Well, what does that mean? Well, if you just think of some of the examples we have today, more often than not, many of these deconverted or so-called Christians, they publicly praise sinful things that the Bible says we probably shouldn't even speak of such things. They're typically critical of orthodox doctrine or dated biblical views, but they sound spiritual as they reject the Bible and gain many followers in doing so. And I think most disturbingly, they often sound magnanimous in doing so. Because they couch it in, you know what, I'm finally being real. I'm finally being my true self. I'm finally loving like Christ did. That's why they're so attractive and so dangerous. They even claim to enjoy floating in a sea of uncertainty where they can question everything and really never come to conclusion about anything other than the Bible is wrong and the church is evil and Christians are hypocrites. Well, those things we know for sure. And they're prolific examples. And ultimately, we see as Paul writes, that their God is their belly. Whatever they hunger for. And appetites change all the time. But as you see, those whose appetites change all the time, Paul describes as those who are tossed to and fro by the waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. How ironic that they call themselves enjoying a sea of uncertainty. And Paul says, yeah. That's what it looks like, tossed all around to and fro. With minds set on earthly things, 
They claim that joy and satisfaction is found somewhere else other than God's Word, which is the very mistake that Adam and Eve made in the beginning. So Paul plainly states, following the example leads to destruction. That's their end. Now the one thing that the self-righteous who Paul addressed and the self-indulgent that he's addressing now have in common is the self. They believe that life is found in pursuit of, glory of, and dependence on the self. Different kinds of self, but the self nonetheless. And what is the core of the gospel? It's self-denial. Where we lose our life in order to find it in Christ. So here's what Paul writes. He shifts our mind back to conclude with, like, this is what we ought to think like. He says, but... But our citizenship is not of the world. It's in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. And so for the second time he talks about citizenship, particularly with the Philippians. And he talks about our heavenly citizenship as the basis of, for in the beginning and the end of life. And the illusion of citizenship would not be lost on the Philippians. They loved their Roman citizenship. Rome was interesting in its citizenship. See, unlike other empires, they allowed for diversity and actually a tremendous amount of religious tolerance. Romanization, if you will, of different nations didn't require abandoning all their cultural traditions and identity, but submitting it to Roman authority. And so Roman citizenship was kind of this supremely governing citizenship that that really governed all others. It didn't replace them as much as it directed them. Well, similarly, heavenly citizenship is even a greater governing citizenship for every area of our life. We don't get rid of every tradition and cultural identity we have, they're governed by a larger identity. And what primarily characterizes this heavenly citizenship is not primarily a specific practice or a specific even precept. Those things do exist in that citizenship, but that's not the primary characteristic. Primarily it's about a person. It's about Jesus. So what I say next might be weird, might sound strange, might sound offensive, that's okay. But if you are a Christian, let me ask you quite plainly, why? Why are you a Christian? And I know the Sunday school answer. I know like, well, it's, I was, I'm not talking about theology answer, but like, what joy, what hope, like, What is it do you expect out of a life following Jesus? What is the thing that captivates you? Other than just like, I don't want to go to hell. So I pondered this question this week, which is an interesting pondering thing. Led me to the 
story in the Gospel of John that you may remember when Jesus is talking about being the bread of life. And he went as far to say some pretty disturbing things in the midst of a bunch of disciples that were listening to him. And he said, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. We're like, oh, what did you say? They were confused. Some were offended. And Jesus knew it. So he pressed even further. And he goes, oh, are you offended by this? I'm paraphrasing. Are you offended by this? You know, the words I just spoke are spirit and life. But there's some who don't believe because I told you that no one can come unless the Father actually grants it. You know what happened after that? At those words, John records that many of the disciples, not just the crowds, many of the disciples, those who have been following Jesus for some time, those who had respected Jesus, admired Jesus, listened to Jesus, he says, they no longer walked with him. They turned back and no longer walked with him. The crowds walked away from relationship with God because guess what? He said unpopular hard things. He said confusing offensive things. Things they just didn't like. And after they left, the twelve are still there and Jesus turns to them. And he just goes right forward. He goes, hey, you guys want to leave as well? And Simon Peter, God bless him, he answers rightly, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You see, the interesting thing is both the crowds and the disciples knew they needed something. Something more than they had. We all do. I think it could be argued that the pursuit of goodness or the pursuit of badness for that matter, the evidence is we know we're broken. That we need something. The crowds, they sought it in the world. They were going to find it on their own. And the disciples, they were convinced that life was found with Jesus. And so I asked, what about you? You see, I wonder sometimes if if we make the gospel, if this is even possible, probably not, but if we make the gospel unattractive and unappealing because we unintentionally speak too many earthly words and not enough heavenly ones. We speak as if it's possible that our deepest desires can be satisfied in this life. And we usually speak it by saying, well, if we do these good things, or we avoid these bad things, we will find satisfaction. That's not true. Paul knew that there was a perfect to be pursued, that he hadn't and wouldn't have his deepest desires realized, but he pressed heavenward until the return of Christ, or he returned to him. Did you understand that life For the citizen of heaven is a life of longing. Romans 8 says it well. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit 
we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for he who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We're not called Christian citizens. We're not called godly citizens. We're actually called heavenly citizens. And this groaning and longing for more, this groaning and desiring for the coming restoration yet to come is part of that maturing. And instead of directing our groaning, because we all groan, we all long, we all know like, ah, I need something. Instead of directing it outward, horizontally, to good or bad things, Paul says, let's direct it upward in hope of something yet to come. As Thomas Akempis said in The Imitation of Christ, wait a little, my soul. Wait for the divine promise and you'll have an abundance of all good things in heaven. If you desire present things too much, you will lose those which are everlasting and heavenly. I don't believe we should quell our very real desires as much as direct them heavenward by speaking to our souls. Our tendency is to go and find something in the world. Speak to our souls of the glory yet to be revealed, of the joy yet to be experienced, of the perfection yet to come at the return of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And in doing this, heavenly citizens live as friends of the cross, even in the midst of unmet desire, because they live anticipating something greater, anticipating restoration. You see, Jesus lived the way He did in this world because His hope was set beyond this world. And Jesus died And he rose again to give you that same hope. A hope beyond any hope you might find on earth. Any hope you might find in any good thing or any bad thing. A hope that can never, ever be taken away and is actually realized at death. Death itself cannot take it away. And so I close with the last verse that Paul wrote. Therefore, my brothers, knowing this restoration is yet to come, knowing that you are guaranteed that every desire you have will be satisfied. My brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown, along with me and along with other brothers and sisters, stand firm thus in the Lord. Stand firm knowing that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise You for Your goodness to us, Your faithfulness to us, Lord, Your great promises to us. As we grow, Lord, in relationship with You, we confess our tendency to try and save ourselves, if You will, to find satisfaction in the world, either through doing lots of good things or from pursuing bad things. 
Lord, we know that neither one truly satisfies. We know, though, those desires are pointing us toward the full restoration yet to come at the return of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, let us be a people who think heavenly, who dream heavenly, who hope heavenly, who live as heavenly citizens. We thank you. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.